This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Welcome back to another episode of Worth Recovery, um, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. I'm super excited for today's episode, and I'm not going to do much of an introduction because I have one recorded with our guest today, Natalie. However, I just wanted to really quickly just give you a warning um, that this is this might be a little triggering. Uh, Natalie talks about her story, and there's quite a bit of trauma in her story and what she experienced um and the rape that she experienced. And so I just wanted to put a little warning out there. Um, if that's something that you might find um, a little difficult to listen to today, you might want to put it off and listen to it at another time. I think there's a lot of value here. I, I not, I think there is a lot of value here and listening to Natalie's full story of how far she's come in her recovery was incredibly inspiring for me to record it. Um, And so I'm super excited for her to share it with all of you. I'm super excited to share it with the world because I think it's amazing. It's also done in three parts. So today we are going to just do part one. Um, I'm going to go ahead and release part two early on. And then next week we'll release part three. So within a week, you'll be able to hear all three parts of her story. It's amazing and inspiring, and I love her so much, just like I love all of you. So I just wanted to throw that on the beginning here, um, just that it might be a little bit, a little bit hard to listen to for you if you are struggling right now. So, and also, if you're struggling right now, it might be really good for you to listen to to relate to someone and to understand someone's experience. But I'm just throwing it out there. Okay, love you all. Here we go. Natalie. Okay, welcome back, listeners, friends, to another episode of Worth Recovery, the Worth Recovery podcast. My name is Amy. I'm your host here. I'm a recovering sex addict, and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. And I'm so excited to bring you another women's story episode to add to our collection to be able to share more women's stories throughout the world of their recovery process. And I'm sitting here today with Natalie. Hey. Hi. Hi. I've known Natalie for about three years. Yeah, three right? years. And Natalie is actually lives in Wales. Yep, in the UK. From, from the UK. And she's here visiting the United States, mm-hmm. visiting Utah. Yeah. And so we're taking this opportunity. We've talked for ages about recording your story. Yeah. And kind of putting that together for people to be able to hear, mm-hmm. and so we're taking this opportunity to to actually make it happen. Yeah, and I'm it's super so excited. Me too. It's so good to be here, and yeah. so good to see you face to face. I know it's been really fun. Yeah, to spend a little bit of time together. Cool. And spend a little bit more time together this week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Natalie is how old are you? I'm Four. forty. That's just, right. just barely. Just, just scraped through. Yeah. Awesome. And you've been in recovery. As long um, as I've known you. Yeah, which... I've, been in, I've been in recovery since about 2012, but in okay. um, sex addiction recovery actively since 2015, end of 15, and beginning yeah, of 16, beginning right? Beginning of 16. Yeah, great. So, 
Mm-hmm. Natalie, what, I mean, so you've been in recovery for a while. This is not something new to you. No. But what was it that helped you decide that you needed to have recovery? Like, what was going on in your life that you said, this is going to change? Yeah, well, what ultimately brought me to, to therapy, um, I had a car accident in 2007. Back then, um, I was insane with fitness. That's all I did all day, all, all day long. And this car accident was pretty serious. Um, and then I was living in the Middle East at the time and ended up back in the UK. And I was working as a fitness instructor and the car accident, there'd been an insurance claim with the car accident. And so I knew I was gonna get like a little bit of a payout. And the insurance company sent me to go and see a therapist. And at that point, I thought there was no nothing wrong with my life that a good session in the gym couldn't fix. And um, I went along and I tried out four different therapists and I didn't like them and I wasn't going back. And I used that age old of, oh, I'm too busy for that, too busy for that. And mm-hmm. didn't really inform anybody that I wasn't going to the appointments. And then I went to see this therapist. They booked this fourth and final therapist and I sat in his chair and he sat opposite me, very, very cool and casual. Didn't move and the whole time I was itching, fidgeting. <laughs> I was allergic to everything going, you know, um, <laughs> gluten, wheat, dairy, my, you know, my diet was stripped back to nothing. And I left his room thinking, not going there again. What does he know? And he phoned me up. I skipped his next appointment and he phoned me up and said, "Uh, Natalie, you're not allergic to anything. You're really stressed out. You need some serious help. But I can't help you unless your bum is in the seat. And I was like, I don't know. And he said, well, how about I tell you I can bump up your claim a little bit. I was like, I'll see you Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I went back along to therapy. Um, not believing that I needed it, of course. And he laid out some pretty bare truths in that first week. And he said, we had 23 sessions together. By that point, I didn't really cry. By six, by week session six, I was hugging the pillow, I was crying. He helped me sort out a whole load of mess in my life. And I skipped off out of the, after the 23rd session thinking, I'm fixed, life is great, yeah. I've made it. And I carried on my life. So that was 2009. And I carried on life um, till about 2012. And I had a breakdown. Um, I had a relationship with a guy who messed me around a lot. He said he was single. And then I found out he was still married. And he was back in two between us. And it really had an impact on my mental health. At the time, I was dealing... uh, with a divorce, I was raising a child by myself, um, working in a very physically demanding job and trying to do a degree. And my mum was quite seriously ill and I was trying to sort all that out and trying to pretend that there was nothing wrong. Um, So when I went into, I had a breakdown um, when this relationship ended and I went to a therapist and I said, "Um, am I mad? I thought I'd actually gone crazy and she just looked at me and laughed and said, no, you're not mad, Natalie. You're burnt out at both ends of the candle and you've had a good go of light in the middle. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, and I did a lot of work with her and it was amazing. Um, she helped me through that relationship. It was a really, really difficult year. I'd say it was a year. And um, she said <laughs> about relationships that I've been fishing in the wrong pool. 
and that maybe I needed to try widening my scope and try internet dating. And I was petrified of internet dating back then. I was like, no, I don't want that because uh, I had real intimacy disorders, which I didn't know at that point. Right, right. I didn't know. You just knew that that was going to be a problem. That was going to be a problem. Um, I didn't want people to know. And so she helped me get over the fear of that. And we worked on getting getting me back out there. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. Um, that you got back out there. Got back out there. And that lasted a good year. Yeah. Um, what, what was that like being out there? Hard at first. Um, after that relationship, I hadn't really healed. I didn't really know how to speak to it uh-huh. um, because of it being like the kind of grief that couldn't be processed publicly. That I couldn't really go and say, "Hey, I'm grieving for this guy," because it seemed like you know he's gone back to his wife and his kids, and I was the villain. Right, because you were having an affair, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, how could I speak to that? And it was all like, "Poor the wife, poor her." And I was seen as the villain. How? So who could I speak to that with? Because you try and speak to that to a married woman. Yeah, it doesn't work out. Yeah, it goes down like a lead balloon. <laughs> um, so sure. it was really hard. So I, I basically tried to get another relationship to fit in with what society wanted me and to be acceptably moving on. And it was really, really difficult. Um, I didn't really find anybody in internet dating. It just made it easier to have that connection in the quick moments and not actually have to go on a date. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, I can even remember laughing, saying it was like shopping for eBay. You know, I can have a look and bid for it, and if I don't want it, I don't have to bid. And laughing about I can shop for a man from my armchair. Um, completely That's objectifying. Right. Yeah. Um, and so true of so many of the apps that we have to date with. Yeah. It is internet. Like, it is eBay shopping. For yeah, me. and then, I mean, that happened quite quickly. I only really used it for, like, a year. And, but it progressed from having Match.com paying for a good site to then going to Tinder, thinking, this is brilliant. I could just check through on how they look, and I didn't mm-hmm. even have to read a profile. I could, <laughs> I could input in my head everything I wanted them to be. Right. And this, this app, it was quick and easy. Um, but underneath, it wasn't working. And I was trying to put the laugh on and the face on to the world that I'm this girl about town, living the living the, the good life. Mm-hmm. When underneath it was every every time I was feeling more hurt and knocked down and the worthlessness was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I still continued through therapy. Mm-hmm. I tried to have some relationships um, and they didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Like I, whilst I was in therapy, I say I'd give it a good go. Tried the best I could. Um, but all the time in the background of this, I had a guy who was an acting out partner that in total lasted for seven years. So every knockback I had, I would go to him. Um, anytime there was an issue in my life, because he'd, I never introduced him to my friends or anybody, I would go around to his house and the payoff would be, I would have sex with him, he would give me time. And that's just how it went. Um, yeah, kind of that transactional intimacy, right? Yeah, and my life was so chaotic and busy that it was so nice to go to his house and just have that quiet away, that break from my life. Mm-hmm. And that was the payoff, but I never told him about that. I just went round, gave him what he wanted, and I would just get to have a good night's sleep and and not face the demands of my life. Yeah, um, a lot of unmanageability, right? Huge. There was huge unmanageability. And so, again, so, you know, that that's about 2013? Yeah, 2012 14. into 2013. 
And so then what happened? Um, so towards the end of that year, I just started kind of partying really hard, trying to okay. forget everything by just living super in the fast lane by this point. Um, life became more crazy. And like craziness of life would be things like speeding fines, parking fines, being late for things, not showing up to things, double booking, forgetting to pay bills, just general chaos. Um, and like I said, all this time I'm trying to raise a son. Right, so you have a son you're trying to raise. Yeah. You're working, you're still doing fitness classes? Yeah, at this point um, I was doing about 16 a week. 16 fitness classes a week. Yeah, barely eating. You were teaching. Yeah. Barely eating. Barely eating. And I had the mentality of, you're only as good as your last class. So every class I went to, I gave it everything I had. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm trying to have a social life. And then trying to, and then like when you said living in the fast lane. So, yeah. like you were partying really hard. Yeah. You were, and all of this all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't working. Yeah. <laughs> I was feeling shittier and shittier. You could say shittier and shittier you're, you're all the time. To say that. Yeah. Life was getting more and more unmanageable. I was disappointing more people. I was letting more people down. My friendship groups were getting pretty annoyed with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very unreliable, very untrustworthy, and yeah, it was it was a mess. So what happened? Um. I got really drunk at a wedding and I did a tuck jump in six inch heels. You did what? A tuck jump in six inch heels. A tuck jump? Yeah, and as I landed and hit the floor. In six inch heels. It did not end well for me or the floor. Um, And it took my back out. Uh, I had a pretty serious injury, impacted on top of the car accident, had a real serious injury and tried to ignore it. Um, because I couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to carry on my life the way it was and like scrambling, trying to make everything fit. Um, it, at no point did it occur to me that something needs to change. So now you have this massive injury mm-hmm. to your back yeah. and I think your shoulder, right? Yeah, and yeah. it was radiating all down my leg to the point where when I was walking, I couldn't even walk up steps or ramps and I was struggling to get it in the car. Um, and you're still trying to teach 16 fitness classes. Yeah, even just speaking and this back sounds crazy. Take care of your son. Yeah. And go to school, mm-hmm. right? You were going to the university. No, I finished university. Oh, okay. I didn't complete my final year because I made a choice of... To drop out, basically. Yeah. And a tutor had... When I was struggling, he'd offered that if I gave him oral sex, I could get passed through. And I just wasn't... Like, I didn't even have to speak to that or have the... So I just ran. Huh. have the capacity to even deal with that yeah. so on top of everything else I was like smiled awkwardly and just did a no show never went back you probably like dodged a bullet with that one yeah right. but I think I could have handled it better considering I was one of the elder girls on the course maybe but, but still yeah so now you have this injury and you're trying to continue to operate in regular life yeah pretending I've not got it so I tried all the stuff how'd that go not well <laughs> Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Um, some other injuries started picking up. Um, it was hard to teach the classes. I would have to go into the gym earlier to warm up so my leg could get used to it. I would teach the class and then try and drive home and be in pain all night. Um, I wouldn't take painkillers. and uh, I wouldn't go to the doctors. And um, it was a mess. 
And I'd arranged with some other girls that we were going to do a charity walk in another country. And at this point, all my friendship groups were imploding. And I felt really uncomfortable. And so um, I pulled out, using the excuse of my leg, but then fronted up with the help of the therapist of the real reason why I was doing it that I didn't feel comfortable. I started putting some boundaries in and it really blew up my friendship group um, big time. Um, all my class numbers dropped down to like four and I lost all my friends. And it that was hard. And so instead of dealing with it by going to the doctors or trying to get some help, I decided that I clearly needed a break from this place. So I applied for another job. Um, and I moved in, I got the job and I moved in three weeks. Yeah, so a lot of people call that like a cut and run, right? Oh yeah. You like cut all your friendships, all your jobs, like everything. Mm -hmm. You just cut all ties and you picked up and moved. Yeah. How far away did you move? Four hours. Okay, so a significant move. Yeah, huge move. Um, in like a matter of two weeks, yeah. three weeks. So I had a house that I had to rent out and get somebody else in. A son that I needed to move, I handled that really poorly. Mm -hmm. um, just like, hey, we're going. Um, it was the right decision, I think, looking back. I managed it completely wrong. Mm -hmm. I just put it on Facebook that I was going and that's how people found out. Uh, and it was hard. Yeah. So you move, now you're I in moved. a new place, you have a new, a new job, place, new job. you got, you know, a son, and yeah. so... Still, 50% of my job was still fitness, um, but it was a lot less than what I was doing, so it was okay. Mm -hmm. um, it was a good wage, uh, I worked with the school holidays, so I started becoming more present, and then my son at this point was 10, and I was faced with the fact that I didn't really know him. He was grieving the loss of moving. He was finding it a real struggle. And I was, it was just me and him. Like with no other distractions around. And then um, he was, yeah, he was at school and I was trying to manage working. And I was teaching teenagers. And I was starting to become faced with the consequences of not really parenting well and starting to become faced in reality of what's out there for teenagers, which I'd been completely oblivious to, and started seeing that. Um, the relationship with my parents was really, really um, strained. I didn't really have that. I didn't have any friends left, really. And any ones that I did do were miles away. And I was really struggling to make friends, um, especially female friends. One of the things, again, I resorted back to was trying to get back to teaching classes, mm -hmm. but that didn't work because my back was so wrecked. Um, I tried again internet dating, but that felt super scary because I was in a place where I didn't even know because it was dangerous to go out on dates. Mm -hmm. um, and I turned to pornography for a while, um, but that brought up a whole load of shame and that wasn't even really working. Right. So yeah. you're just kind of going further and further down this scale of like, and hitting a lot of hard truths. Like, yeah. I don't know my son. There's a whole lot of stuff out there for teenagers to get into yep. because you're teaching teenagers, right? Mm -hmm. You're still trying to do some kind of fitness because that was your identity, right, yeah. for so long. I was Natalie, the fitness instructor. Right. And, but none of it's working. Mm -hmm. And in the, so in an effort to try to connect with something, you turn to pornography for a little while. Yeah. And then you realize that's not going to work either. No. 
And that so, just wasn't... I just felt so much shame and so yeah. much fear that, what if anybody finds out? What if I get caught? I felt disgusted by it. Um, and it was very quick to take hold as well of how much I wanted to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and by this point, I was just tired, burnt out, grey, really. Mm-hmm. It was It was rough. So what happened next? What happened next? So I'd got into a relationship with a guy, another emotionally unavailable man, and again, trying to figure out why is this not working? What's wrong with me? How can I make this work? And I went to a therapist and she started talking me through different things. And I think about the second session, she asked me about my family. Um, and I was like, hmm, what, you know, is anybody in your family that drinks? alcohol and I was like well my mum likes a drink you know I couldn't really even say it and <laughs> you like whisper it to her yeah whisper it my mum likes a drink my mum likes a drink and, you know yeah and it was I couldn't even say it um the shame that basically my mum's an alcoholic and I come from a long line of family of alcoholic it wasn't just my mother it was like multiple generations multiple generations aunties and uncles there was a huge problem some of them had got sobriety some of them had not um and then as soon as I found that I read um a really good book called After the Tears Uh which is a book about um an adult child of an alcoholic and I read it it was like oh my gosh finally it's as if something had broke through the clouds and gone "Ah!" (laughs) you know and it was like this is my life this is my life wow and then it was like I found another book and found another book and found another book um and then I decided to go to uh, Al-Anon. Okay. So I spent three months in Al-Anon crying. Um, hearing other, it was a very small group, hearing other people's story. Uh-huh. Three months crying. Um, but I really struggled with it. I really struggled to connect with the... Because at this point, I didn't know that I had relationship issues or intimacy disorder. You know, right. it was just chaos, chaos, right. chaos. Sex addiction wasn't even like... Sex addiction wasn't no. even like a word yet for you. Well, I kind of done a survey years back with one of my friends and we'd uh-huh. laughed and said oh I'm a sex addict yeehaw high five yeah 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 because you know so <laughs> it was something to be proud of um, and then yeah so I'm in this group and these women are coming and they're talking about their husbands and like just for one day at a time I'm taking the marriage and I'd be thinking what's wrong with you kick him to the curb like I couldn't get why they were still in the room and I was getting more and more angry like why aren't you changing your position and then I put into Google and I found a multi-addiction help center. Um, and I went along to that and they had a family group and it was amazing. Uh, it, it really was. It, I can remember walking in and the guy who was running it was away. And the people said, oh, you met him yet? And I was like, no. And they said, well, he's a force to be reckoned with. You wait till you meet him. <laughs> and the groups were amazing. The family group, uh, to talk about it, it was the first time I ever got really brutal and a lot of my resentment and rage towards my family could start coming out and I sat in that group for probably about a year so where so this was a like just a a free center yeah it's a free center so is it okay if I mention the name yeah I think it's super helpful for people to know it's called the living room and it's in Cardiff um, and it's a free center for anybody that has an addiction any kind of an addiction even and it can be a mental health issue as well Mm -hmm. like depression um are the families of or the friends of anybody that's ever suffered from it can go there's group therapy there's counseling peer-to-peer support and recovery coaches it's amazing and it's free all of it is free that's fantastic yeah and it's like they give so much of their time it's Uh absolutely brilliant yeah yeah 
And so you went because you were a family member. Yeah, I went because alcoholic. Yeah, right. And yeah, and I can remember in that. So in that time, I had one relationship. I'd met a guy on internet dating. I was committing to being healthier, and I felt healthier. I did genuinely feel like I was in a good place. Um, However. I did know that every time I drank alcohol, that my behaviour kind of slipped into behaviour that I didn't want to talk about, mm-hmm. which was I usually ended up around this guy's house mm-hmm. or contacting him again. Um, I didn't really want to discuss that. So I was like, oh, if I stop drinking, that's not going to be a problem. Right. Yeah. Because you have come from this long line of alcoholics. So. Yeah. So I must be. You must be an alcoholic. Right? And so you know, that must be the problem. Yeah, and why wait to get to level 36? Why not get off the lift early on and right. sorted? So I stopped the drinking, okay. um, which I actually loved because I actually don't like alcohol. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it was like, oh, so it was working I'm for total. You. I don't yeah. drink. It was great. Um, so when did you go sober from alcohol? 2014. Okay. Yeah. So 2014, but my friends who were recovering alcoholics, you know, they would talk about some of the triggers that they see, the pubs, and I was like, I don't see that. Right. I don't notice it around the supermarkets or people doing it, and I don't have any issue not doing it. It feels... Feels great. Feels great. Right. Yeah, and I was thinking, maybe I'm in that pink cloud, but it wasn't, um, because it only took me like two drinks to get drunk, and I felt embarrassed about that, so uh it was so cool just to leave it. Because alcohol wasn't your real addiction no right um so then i was going i was driving up the country to go and pick up my son and i downloaded a podcast for women in addiction worth recovery oh yeah so it was your podcast and you know i was listening to the tune and it was so much fun and i listened to the first podcast and i was like oh i get on board with this and i related a lot to your story and a lot of things that were going on and then the next podcast and then the next one and then the next one four in i'm like oh my goodness i'm a sex addict this is the issue like and I because originally when I thought sex addict I always thought like a nymphomaniac right a woman that just can't get enough right um, or so, a lot of people the stigma is like a child molester or yeah, an abuser, child molester right? or, abuser like, or someone that just can't leave it alone you know right. um, some dirty kind of person right. or um, even a prostitute you know mm-hmm. does it because they love the job and um, the money's the bonus that's what I thought uh, so to hear your story and to hear some of the other stuff that was on there was a bit of a shock. Like, oh my gosh. So I'm waiting in this car park. and I download, To pick up your son. To pick up my son. <laughs> and I download the white book. Oh. <laughs> and I'm sat in like this the car. the essay white book. The okay. essay white book. And I read the first thing, you know, and the thing that just sticks in my mind is, we cried with outreached arms, connect with me and make me whole. And I was like, that's me. And everything changed from that moment. It was like my eyes had been opened mm-hmm. and I could never go back. Um, so I went back to my therapist because I was having to read therapy with an amazing therapist at the time. And I, at the living room. At the living room. Okay. She was amazing. Um, she helped me with so many things, um, with trusting women and just so many things got me off the ground. Uh-huh. A lot of anger was coming out. And I said, I think I might be a sex addict. And she was like, well, I did kind of want to speak to you about it, but I wondered <laughs> when to bring it up. And I was like, oh... And the grief hit pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, the shock. Um, thinking I was dirty, disgusting, worrying, am I an infomaniac? Is that what's wrong with me? But knowing that I couldn't go there. Knowing that I had problems. Um, and knowing, I think I'd already hit rock bottom 2012. 
and nothing was working. So there was a sense of relief to know that it was an issue and there was a solution. Mm-hmm. Scared out my mind. Mm-hmm. And I can just remember sobbing one day in that group therapy, like, <laughs> I can never text anybody again. <laughs> like, I just went from one extreme to the other and it was like, oh, this is horrific. Um, and she convinced me to go to an essay group, uh, which was amazing. It was scary. Mm-hmm. And I can remember thinking, what am I going to meet in here? Are these men going to be flashing at me? Is it going to be there in flash marks? <laughs> Are they going to be a bunch of perverts? And I went to the meeting and I was surprised to find the nicest group of men I, I'd met mm-hmm. up until that date. Um, gentlemen. It was a very welcoming room. Uh, it was a good experience. I'd say because I'd been in the British Army for a long time. I'd been in very male-dominated environments. So to be in a room full of men that were respectful to women was really different. Yeah. And I never expected to find that in a sex addict group. Yeah. It was quite a shock. And I was encouraged to go back next week and look forward to going back. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the downward story. Yeah. Right? From then on, it's... It's steadily, like maybe sometimes two steps forward, one step back, uh-huh. but it's a gradual upway now. Yeah, so it was 2016 that you were yeah. like, this is my problem. Yeah, so right. I accepted it in July 2016. That's when I started obsessively listening to your podcast, released, released one addiction, soon talk about another one, uh-huh. um, and then I went to SA in August 2016. Yeah. And your current sobriety dates in 2016, right? Yeah. So you've been sober. Well, it's the first date I walked into a meeting. Right. So you've been sober for three years. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's amazing. Yeah. Do you know, sitting here, it's three years on. It's exciting to say that my Mm -hmm. life is different and I can sit here with a smile on my face and Mm -hmm. yeah, I feel good about myself. I no longer carry the shame of my addiction. I'm currently in the grieving process of the addiction and some other things that I lost whilst in it. Yeah. I'm super grateful for life as it is today. So tell us, because a lot of a lot of women, mm-hmm. right, their story is much their story into recovery is much different than yours. Mm-hmm. Usually they get into recovery because they get you know, they get out of a painful affair and that puts them into recovery mm-hmm. or you know, they lose something or something you know, violent happens to them or something like that and they get into recovery kind of as a like a rock bottom, mm-hmm. right? But your story wasn't like that, right? You had done a lot of different dabbling in like therapy here and therapy there and Mm -hmm. this and that and blah, blah, blah. And then you get into recovery and you identify with this addiction of sex addiction, right? Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I've been privileged to kind of watch that story, right, unfold for the last three years. Yeah. And, And so like people might not think based on your like kind of version of the story here, like that, you know, you weren't really acting out. Like, you weren't, mm-hmm. you know, at that time, you had some pornography issue there for yep. a little while. But other than that, you weren't really acting out with men. You weren't really doing a whole lot of one-night stands. You weren't no. really, you know, that's not really your story. No, no. But as you've been in recovery, I know you've been able to open up and really understand a lot more. Yeah. Kind of about how you got there, right? Yeah, for sure. So would you be willing to share with us yeah, I'd love some to. of that and some yeah. of that unfolding? Because it's been quite a shock. Every every new stage that was rele- released to me was queenside has been quite a shock because I think a lot of my issue has been seen society as acceptable. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I did was acceptable, and not just acceptable, but I was celebrated for being an empowered woman. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think my first issues really started when I was younger with masturbation at a very young age, probably around six. I, of course, didn't know what I was doing. Right. It was just something that felt good at night, like a self-soothe. And it wasn't masturbation to orgasm. It was just, like, kind of stroking because it felt nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened for many, many years. Um, I was petrified of boys growing up. Uh, yeah, that whole thing of boys are on the school ground, if they pick on you, they like you, definitely felt like that. I couldn't, like, having done the work now sitting with how I got picked on in school by the boys and how terrifying that felt. It was like I was watched by some of them and I felt that they were attracted to me but they couldn't stop picking on me so I definitely felt that as a young girl and I did not want a relationship. And it was to the point where my family would ask me, you know, do you want to get married or anything? And I'd be like, oh no, not having children. And then as I hit that age of like puberty and my other friends started getting boyfriends, I felt really odd, like what's wrong with me? Um, but I didn't want to have a boyfriend. I certainly didn't want to have one and go home and tell my family and be mocked for it. Um, I just didn't want to have the shame or the, the embarrassment. And I also wanted to fit in society, like as being seen to be liking boys. So I developed a lot of crushes on celebrities mm. and that was good. And I also had a crush on a guy for the whole of my high school. A guy <laughs> the that, same guy. Same guy. And he didn't want to know me, obviously. <laughs> I had this crush because... It was safe. It was safe. It suited me to be pursuing this guy and be seen Mm -hmm. to be having... Wanted to have these relationships Mm -hmm. but not have one. And so all my friends were moving on. So my first kiss wasn't until I was 14. Someone set me up to kiss with a guy who was much shorter than me and I made him stand on a a pavement (laughs) and I was like, ooh. And I got laughed up for it and, you know, of course that didn't happen again for a while. And then I was 16 and I'd had a relationship and I wouldn't have sex with a guy and he cheated on me. Um, because of that and I was just taken down in shame like I was really hurt but I didn't have anybody to really say it to and one of my coping strategies was to zip up and put on a brave face and pretend like brush myself down nothing Mm -hmm. matters well and I mean that's based on the fact that you had some dysfunction going on at home yeah I was yeah at home um, my mum had a lot of dysfunction in her childhood a lot of sexual abuse that happened for her that she wasn't able to and not willing to look at and it was coming out all over the place mm-hmm. right. um, you know understand and she was back then as well you know a woman working taking care of the man at the home she had a professional job she had two kids she was she cooked everything from scratch she worked full time she run a tight ship she didn't have time anything right she was as burnt out as you were oh. when you started therapy right you no know, that's just hit me <laughs> just saying that what comes in the trees comes out in the branches right yeah I was a lot like my mum and she was burnt out so I have a lot more compassion for her now uh-huh. back when I first went to recovery none right I, but I didn't know her backstory either I didn't know any of that and yeah so, so 16 16 this, this guy he joined the army just one second I forgot that I uh Okay, so let's back up. Um, so we were saying, so 16. 16. You, you had broken up with, this you, This guy broke up with you. He cheated on you. Yeah, he broke, kind of broke up with me. He did it in a really awful way. Uh, <laughs> he just got his mate to ring me up and ask me out and said in the background how this other girl saying he, she was going out with him and that was that, it was over. Uh, and I just put the phone down and pretended like it didn't happen. Yeah. And of course I couldn't. My mum didn't have time to process any of that with me. We didn't have that relationship. Mm-hmm. And I just went back to my friends and laughed it off like I was the, the, the clown of the group, really. I was always, like, 
showing up and showing off really that nothing mattered I was resilient but inside I wasn't yeah and then yeah I was 16 just coming up for my final year in high school and this guy had joined the army and I was in the army cadets and we had a sleepover at the army cadet hut and this guy came back from his week five leaving the army Uh and our adult instructor leader said take her into the storeroom and get the job done and that was my first experience of sex wow yeah this feels heavy seeing it yeah that that is heavy yeah and as that 16 year old girl there was a part of me that bragged about it went back to my friends because they were all starting to have sex now with the boyfriends that they've been in a long time I wanted to fit in I wrote it in my journal like and so whoopee for me I'd had sex with a guy that I'd fantasised about for years. I felt like I... This was the guy that you had a crush on your yeah, whole high school. like from junior school, really. Yeah. Yeah, so I... And he raped you. Yeah. I mean, that's... that's yeah. That was a rape, right? Mm-hmm. Is that how you classify that? It's hard to even own that. It's only been the last year that I've started owning some of my sexual experiences as rape. Mm-hmm. Um, my innocence was taken. Um, him I hold accountable I'm still struggling with that I'm still trying to process that mm-hmm. but that adult leader he had a duty of care um, and I just brushed it under the carpet like I'm I was the big I am I, I've now started having sex um, my mum found my journal and wow yeah and I was ripped apart it um, my dad cried and my mum told me that I was dirty and disgusting and that, yeah, and it was really hard. And by this point, I'd signed up to join the army myself. And that was it. Um, they threatened not to let me go, but I wanted to go because things were so turbulent and so terrible between my, me and my family, just so horrific that I was ready to move on and escape them. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So in the, that happened in the August. No. You know, I honestly can't remember. It was around about that time. And then I joined the army in the November. So you're 16. So it must have happened in October. And I joined the army a month later. So you're 16 and you joined the army. Yeah. Right. So in the United States, we can't serve in the military until we're 18. Right. Right. But as a 16-year-old, you can go join the army. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. That blows my mind. Like, I know 16-year-old kids, like, they shouldn't be in the army. No. I taught kids at that age, mm-hmm. and I taught, um, well, I see my son. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's no way I'd have him go. Right. Um, he's, too, he's too young. Right. I was not prepared. I was not prepared at all for the environment, for the guy. Even though I'd been in army cadets, I thought I was at a young age, you know, a teenager at 15, 16. I thought I knew it all. I was clueless. I could not have even been mentally, physically, or emotionally prepared for what mm. for what was about to happen. So, what happened? What did you do uh, in the army? How long were you in the army? I was in for nine years in total. Okay. Um, some of it, I've got some really good skills that have served me in life, and some amazing things that happened. But most of it, a lot of trauma, and it's taken a lot. It's only been this year I'm able to start looking at it after years and years of therapy, um, finding the right people to be able to speak to and taking some action on it. It's been really, really hard. What types of trauma? So 
So basic training, I'd uh, obviously left home at 16. I'd left all my friends. Um, and I was the kind of girl in high school, I was in the band and I played the clarinet and I ran. I know, we have that in common. Yeah. We both played the clarinet, <laughs> yeah. which is awesome. I, and you were a runner. Yeah, and I, um, I loved doing crafts and I was very girly. Um, I just happened to be extremely fit, even back then. Um, I wasn't cut out for that army life and I certain I you know I came across being quite posh and I got laughed at um, I didn't swear at the time and I got laughed at I didn't smoke and I got laughed at um, and I was the youngest girl there was only uh, two, three other girls in our troop at the time one left and the rest of them were men the troop uh, leaders they never had women um, there was there was troops of just pure women but due to our cohort we had to go into this troop of men that had never served women and it was difficult. I tried super hard to people please because um, you know I'm a recovering people pleaser and I tried super hard and and it was exhausting, really exhausting. Um, I went home on my week five leave to, to my parents. Um, one of my best friends from school, his dad had died and that was really hard. Um, I'd grown up with him in the same street, that was really difficult. Um, and what was super hard was seeing my friends move on. Like they were going to college, they were going out for pizzas. And my experience was I've been running around with guns and digging holes in the ground. And I felt uncomfortable. I started to feel uncomfortable around my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, it was difficult. They were moving on having boyfriends and I was having this completely different experience with people who were a lot more adult than they were, um, a lot more streetwise than they were. And I was in this kind of middle ground of not knowing where I fitted in. Mm-hmm. Um, my relationship with my parents was really difficult at this point. Uh, well, right, because they had told you that you were disgusting and that you, yeah. you know, were dirty for having sex. Yeah. For being raped, let's call it what it yeah. is. Right. So I carried and, all the shame. Right. I felt. And then you go to the army. Yeah. And now you come back after five weeks. And I'm still being bullied by boys as well. Like. I'm sure, yeah. It was horrific. Um, so... I decided after being at home, enough is enough, I'm not ringing up every day to just be shouted at. Like by my parents, I'm just not gonna ring. And then my dad, I don't know how he did manage to do it. I would give him, like his due where it was, he managed to get the number of the most senior man on the camp, like the direct line number, and called him up and complained that I'd not been ringing and said that maybe it was because they weren't paying me enough. Like why else would I daughter not ring? And so my troop um, commander, the officer, walked me or marched me swiftly into this office of this really high-ranking guy and I was made to phone up my parents we had an outright row on the phone and I left and this officer said is that how it always is when you speak to your parents I said yeah you don't have to phone them again you're in the army now you're your own woman mm-hmm. and that was it um, he started he, even prior to before that he would show me a little bit more attention he was in his 30s He'd show me more attention. I knew from my army cadet days, it, uh, officer, a leader, was not to be speaking to a private. I, I knew that much. Um, so, but I felt special. Like he would come and bring me hot chocolate or bring me a, a bar of chocolate and it felt good to have somebody on my side. Yeah. Um, we went away uh, on adventure training and he bought me some alcohol and made it very clear that he was into me. He folded up like, uh, 
a thing off a beer bottle and said, in America, this is what people give to people. And they call them fuckbucks. If they want to fuck somebody, they give them to them. And then that night, he came to my room and um, forced himself upon me, um, manually masturbated me, and then left. Um, at that point, there was two other girls in the, the troupe, and they got us a room by ourselves. The guys hated it, so we were already ostracised from the men. Um, each of us were in a different troupe, so we didn't really get to speak to each other. They were a lot older than me, and there was a lot of competition between the girls by this point. I was the fittest out of the lot, like physically. Um, so you, you had your own room, basically? Yeah. So there was not really camaraderie between the girls, so we had nobody to speak to. I had my own room. It really put a divide between me and the rest of them, and the extra attention that I was getting from him, that I was seen to be getting easier. Mm-hmm. Um, then a lot of that time I can't remember. I can't wholly remember everything that happened in that room. Um, I but, I mean, I know from talking to you, like, this pattern continued. Yeah, this didn't end. Right, that you that he continually raped you. Mm-hmm. And then we got back to the camp, and he asked me to go to his room in the middle of the night. And, of course, being an obedient young soldier, I went along, and I went to his room where he raped me. And I did that for three nights on the run. Um, one of the nights, there was another woman in the bed, and he just told me to go away. And then came to me and asked me to go back the next night, and that's what happened. Um, and in your nine-year span, he wasn't the only one who took advantage of no. you. So that happened. The We passed out of the training that week. And on my pass-off parade, he brought his fiance to come and meet me. Like, hey, this is my fiance. And I was heartbroken. I thought he was going to be my husband. Like, at that age, at 16, I didn't even know that men had one-night stands. I didn't even know what a one-night stand was. I just wasn't that sexually aware. Um, it just didn't happen. All my friends were in relationships. It wasn't talked about before. Right. I thought he loved me. Um, so I was a bit flabbergasted. Um, and then I went. I left that camp and went to my next camp, the School of Music in London. And... It was really hard because I was carrying, I didn't realise then I was carrying a whole load of shame from the rape anyway. The other two girls came with me and other people were talking about me, like heard that sleeps away to the top. I already was on the back foot, I was the youngest. Um, I was seen as being a bit weird, a bit geeky, didn't really fit in with people. And looking back now, I say it was more that I was an awkward, awkward child trying to make her way in the world mm-hmm. um, and I really wasn't streetwise I was just trying to watch what everybody did and act the way they did which is when I started drinking but I couldn't handle it like it made me really ill um, and I certainly couldn't drink like everybody else did but that was the thing to be seen to be done um, and the guys that was the first time I'd ever really heard locker room talk and it was disgusting and it terrified me to hear the way that the men spoke about some of the girls that they were sleeping with. These were girls that were working with me, the girls I was living with, um, the way they talked about their bodies. It was disgusting and I internalised it all, like a frightened to death that it was going to be said about me, you know, that my body stinks, um, my vagina stinks, that women are like this, like a sack of potatoes. And I was just frightened to death of having a, a relationship. I did not want a boyfriend. but. I was quite pretty and young at that time and I was still bringing in male attention so I was both repulsed by it, frightened of it, scared of it. Um, 
but conditioned to be such a people pleaser and especially in the army that I didn't know how to have a boundary with anybody. Well, it sounds like that was the way you found some acceptance. Yeah. Right? If you smile. Were, if you were geeky and if you were awkward and if you felt awkward and if you mm-hmm. felt like people picked on you all the time, then you're going to use what you can to get some acceptance and some connection. Yeah. Right? Like that line you read in the white book, like, yeah. connect with me and make me whole. Right? So anytime some guy came to speak to me, even if I didn't like them or want to speak to them, I believed it was my duty to smile, flip my eyes and look pretty and make them feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. She just flicked her eyes. I know you can't see yeah. that on the podcast. Just flicked my she eyes. She just did. Um, but yeah, so the extent of that was in 18 months, I experienced vaginal rape by nine different men over the, who are all older than me because I was only 16 to 17. 17. Yeah. Um, did I admit that to myself? No. Um, no, it, I mean, no. what I know of you has just been this last year that you've been willing yeah. to admit yourself, admit that to yourself. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's, like that, that is so traumatic. Yeah. And I think anyone, but especially a girl at 16, mm-hmm. 17, who has no support system and no idea of who to even talk to. No, I didn't even about any mention of it. it. The other girls kind of knew, um, but it was always seen as the woman's fault. Like it must have been something I'd done. So by this point, I was being called names by the other girls, slut shamed and riding on the walls. So I didn't have any female friends. I was just like this icky girl trying to fit in where I could. Um, I was at a school of music. I hardly practiced um, because I was so terrified of being judged. Mm-hmm. Like it was just crippling. Um, but I didn't know any different like that was life and I thought it was me I'm obviously nobody wants to go out with me nobody wants to be my boyfriend it's me Um, and I couldn't even say like it was almost like I didn't admit to myself that the sex was happening I shut down from it and that is just the vaginal rapes that's not talking about the guys that would creep into my room at night or the guys that tried to kiss me or the ones that pinched my butt or tried to hit on me. Right, that's no none of the other like sexual harassment no. issues we might think haven't about. even looked at that. Right, this is just pure like vaginal rapes. Yeah, vaginal rapes. Nine men in 18 months. Mm-hmm. Some of them had girlfriends on the camp. Some of them were married. Um, that they would come round the block and mm-hmm. want to have an affair with a young girl because they're bored at home. Um... Yeah, it was horrific. And then I left there in the hope again, I'm going to move, everything's going to be okay. And I went to Germany and I was the only girl in the band. And I decided, because I thought, you know, I'm going to have a bit of a reputation. I didn't want to have that reputation. I'm going to stay, like, not dating. And I did that for a while. Okay, we're going to stop for part one right there. It's been about an hour. I tried to keep these to an hour. So we're going to stop right here and take a pause in Natalie's story for the end of part one. And you'll be able to listen to part two in just a couple days. I'll drop it on the podcast. Okay, thanks so much for listening. Um, Just remember that no matter what is going on in your life today, no matter how far you have gone, no matter what you're thinking about yourself or those around you, no matter the trauma that you've experienced, you are worth recovery, 100% worth it. I know that. And if you don't, you can just trust me until you get there. Remember that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. (laughs) 
legal stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.